0: Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street em. Today's date is April 12th, 2023, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Uno, dos, tres, vertigo? The Grace Three Guidelines. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Jonathan Edlow. He is a practicing emergency physician for nearly 40 years, and he's a professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School, and his academic interests is avoiding misdiagnosis of patients with neurologic emergencies. Welcome to the SGEM, Jonathan.
1: Hey, thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to doing this show with you. It's an SGEM Extra episode, and we've reviewed two previous GRACE guidelines published by the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine. And just to remind everyone, GRACE, which I really like, this acronym, GRACE, stands for Guidelines for Reasonable and Appropriate Care in Emergency Departments. Love the acronym.
1: Yeah, well, this is the, the third one. I didn't have anything to do with the first two, but as you well know, the, the first one tackled the issue of recurrent low-risk chest pain, and the second one was about uh, recurrent belly pain. Two things that you know usually don't make their way into guidelines, but are things that we deal with every shift.
0: Yeah, and now we come to grace three, but we're not talking about recurrent conditions like chest pain and abdominal pain, but rather acute vertigo or dizziness. So what was the objective of these latest guidelines coming out of the Society of Academic Emergency Medicine?
1: Well, the objective for this guideline was to provide an evidence-based review, a framework intended to help support, you know, patients, clinicians, uh, and other healthcare professionals in their decisions about evaluating and managing patients, adult ED patients with acute dizziness. And, and these are the patients who don't have some obvious central cause. They don't have, you know, they're not dragging their right leg or their right arm. They're not, you know, have horribly slurred speech. Uh, this is isolated dizziness. It's not the dizziness that you see, you know, in the setting of early sepsis or the UTI symptoms or somebody ate a bad burrito and they've got nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and dizziness. These are patients that are pretty much having isolated dizziness. And I would point out that this is the first ever guideline about acute dizziness by any organization or society of any specialty. There are a couple, uh, there's an ENT guideline on BPPV, there's a neurology one on BPPV, but there's no overarching guideline about the management and approach to acute dizziness.
0: Well, wouldn't it be great if patients came in and you just lifted up the ball cap and on that forehead, it said BPPV, but it doesn't even better if it said, oh, it's not BPPV. It's a posterior stroke. No, what they come in is saying, I'm dizzy. I've got vertigo. I feel unsteady. And so it's really nice that they take these undifferentiated patients coming in with their chief complaint and then working through the evidence. Just to remind people, though, these are adult patients, which you mentioned earlier, but these people had to have acute dizziness or vertigo for less than two weeks. So that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about somebody who's been dizzy, well, back in 1947 and ever since kind of thing. These are acute dizziness. But I'd like to clarify a couple of terms here because, you know, I think it gets a bit fuzzy when people come in. What do they mean by dizziness and vertigo? I mean, I tend to think of dizziness as someone being lightheaded, unsteady on their feet, maybe a motion intolerance, some kind of imbalance, they're floating, a tilting sensation. How is dizziness defined in Grace Three?
1: Well, the, the Baronet Society defines dizziness as the sensation of disturbed or impaired spatial orientation without the false sense or, or distorted sense of motion. I'm not sure that how meaningful <laughs> that is. <laughs> I'm just it's thinking,
0: great. yeah, that's really clear. Haven't had a patient yeah. say that to me yet.
1: <laughs> Somebody practicing in the emergency department. But but the reality is that all of the descriptors that you just mentioned, different patients will use different descriptors. And, and more recent research over the last couple decades, 15 years maybe, has shown that the descriptor that a patient uses is very meaningless, uh meaningless. In terms of differential diagnosis. You know, the old way that all of us, uh, certainly I had been trained is to ask the patient, what do you mean dizzy? And then wait until they place themselves into one of these boxes. Is it vertigo, the true illusory sense of, sorry, the illusory sense of motion, uh, or is it lightheaded? I feel like I'm going to faint or blackout or gray out. Is it uh, a a taxi or unsteadiness where I feel like I'm dizzy in my feet, my legs, as opposed to in my head, or, or they just can't describe it? And and data show that patients, and this should not come as any surprise to someone practicing emergency medicine, patients will change their descriptor when asked even less than 10 minutes later. So the whole logic of using that, what do you mean dizzy approach is completely undercut by by modern research that shows that a patient might say, I feel like the room is spinning. And then seven minutes later, they say, I feel like I'm going to pass out. So dizziness is kind of it's almost like that old Potter Stewart, the Supreme Court Justice's diagno- uh, definition of pornography, uh, which is, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And uh, dizziness is kind of like that. I mean, these patients are dizzy. They're they're holding their eyes closed. Uh, they don't like to move their head a lot. They're usually nauseous. They sometimes are vomiting. But whether they use the word unsteady or room is spinning or feel like I'm going to faint, Uh, It it all should mean the same thing to you or to me.
0: Well, I don't want to lose my iTunes PG rating, so we're not going to go down into exploring pornography. We'll just say Dizzy is what Dizzy is. And also, here's a little pearl for the med students and the residents that listen to the SGM. When the attending comes in and gets a different history 10 minutes later, it's only because they took the history second. If the attending went in and talked to the patient first and got this story, and then relate it to the medical student, and then the medical student goes in and go, yeah, no, they said they were the room was spinning. They didn't mention unstead, you know, like so. It it's just a, a a sequence of events. So yeah, I'm curious though. You're the guest skeptic on this show about dizziness and vertigo. How did you end up landing on the SGM extra on this topic?
1: well it's been a long and circuitous path first of all i um I saw a patient it was probably thirty five years ago, and uh, this patient uh, came in with a with isolated neck pain, no headache, just neck pain and uh it was one of those things that I almost missed, and kind of one of those patients that falls into the better lucky than good bucket that we all have. The patient ended up with an aneurysmal subrenoid hemorrhage I somehow stumbled into the diagnosis. And I realized how how close I was to, you know, really screwing up in a big way. And it led me to an interest in misdiagnosis of subarachnoid. That led me to misdiagnosis of other cerebrovascular things like stroke and TIA. That led me to the posterior circulation, which in turn led me to dizziness. And, you know, I was kind of primed for it because, as I said before, I was taught to ask the patient, what do you mean Dizzy and then wait forever till they put themselves in a bucket. And that paradigm just never worked for me, or almost never worked for me. And in addition to that, either I fell asleep the day they talked about nystagmus in medical school, uh, or I wasn't paying attention, or I wasn't taught it well in the first place. But I, I knew next to nothing about nystagmus. And once I got hooked on dizziness, I kept going deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole, and, and finally, you know, when I came out, I came out with an algorithmic approach, and that algorithmic approach is based on timing and triggers of the dizziness, just like timing and triggers of belly pain or headache or chest pain or shortness of breath. It, it's not its not a special way of taking a history. It's the way we take a history in almost every other patient. But for some reason, we all got, you know, drank the Kool-Aid about asking a patient, what do you mean dizzy, which I think is a horrible way to start taking a history Of a dizzy patient, so then, once I had this algorithmic approach in my mind and and learning some of the newer data, I started playing around with some of the bedside techniques that we'll talk about. And what I came away with is that instead of, uh, you know, if you and I were doing double coverage and we got to the chart rack at the same moment, and there was two patients, one had dizziness and the other had any other chief complaint you can come up with, you are going to choose that other patient. But I found myself going towards the dizzy patient because I had a a way of, of thinking about them that made the interaction and the intellectual exercise pleasurable as opposed to, you know, a frustrating torture exercise.
0: Well, this Grace 3 author group came up with three times my favorite number. That's 15. <laughs> 15 evidence-based recommendations based on the timing and triggers of the dizziness. So we're going to go through those recommendations. Some of them are quicker. Some of them are, we're going to dive into a bit deeper. But the first one is this overarching recommendation that sort of talks about the whole Grace 3 guidelines. So what is the first recommendation they came up with?
1: Yeah, so I'll read it. And this one is an ungraded good practice statement. So there's no uh, uh measurement about, you know, uh, the degree of uh, certainty. Emergency clinicians should receive training and bedside physical examination techniques for patients with the acute vestibular syndrome. We'll talk about that in a second. And that's the HINTS exam. Uh, and diagnostic and therapeutic maneuvers for BPPV, uh, especially the dix hallpike pike test and the Epley maneuver, since untrained emergency physicians do not reliably apply or accurately interpret results of these bedside uh, eye movement exams.
0: Well, you did mention hints in there, and I know we're going to get to BPPV and Dix-Hallpike and Epley, but can you just bring everybody up to speed? Give us a hint. What is it?
1: (laughs) All right. Now, before I get to hints, one, one thing that's kind of embedded in that first recommendation is the fact that You know, to some extent, most of the guidelines that we come up with, uh, whether it's SAM or ASAP or other organizations, you can start using them right this today, the next shift. To some extent, you know, the GRACE 3 is aspirational in the sense that this is the way we believe the evidence shows doctors can be or clinicians can be taking care of dizzy patients. But without the training, it can be dangerous. So to some extent, this is aspirational. Uh, HINTS, H-I-N-T-S stands for the H-I is head impulse test. N is for nystagmus. T-S is test of skew. And, you know, initially uh, studies came out that were all done by sub-sub specialists, by neurologists or neuro And these studies found that it was really very sensitive uh, for for stroke or for a central cause. But, you know, there's uh There's issues in terms of how we, in in real life, routine practice, apply these things.
0: Well, this first recommendation is sort of sounding like the Mandalorian. This is the way. (laughs) So I do know my Star Wars as well as Star Trek, but I'm more of a Star Trek person than a Star Wars. Star Trek is more uh, philosophical and intellectual, and Star Wars is more action, adventure, and fantasy. But the Mandalorian, this is the way. You know, we should receive training in bedside physical exam techniques and be able to apply them accurately. Because there was a 2021 study reported that EM physicians could be trained. Yes, we can train EM physicians on the HINTS exam and gave a sensitivity of 97% for central vertical. And we actually did an SGM episode on that, SGM number 376. However, a systematic review that included emergency physicians showed less impressive results with a sensitivity of 83%. And so the authors of that systematic review, it was a bunch of fellow Canadians, by the way, the authors said uh, the hints exam by EM physicians has not been shown to be sufficiently accurate enough to rule out a stroke. And that was SGM 310.
1: Yeah, so I would agree that there's a clear-cut disconnect (coughs) between what's possible for emergency physicians to do And what we actually do currently in real life uh, on a routine shift. Uh, What's possible is that emergency physicians can learn to use these techniques. And and the techniques, by the way, that have been studied in that article from uh, SGEM 376 uh, is not just the HINTS exam, but it's also the bedside maneuvers to diagnose and treat BPPV. And and I would point out, by the way, there's another article uh, done by some, the the article we just talked about uh, was done in Paris. Uh, there's another one that was done in Florence, Italy, uh, where uh, similar types of training and similar types of results. So we clearly can do a good job, and, and I would also say that you know my anecdotal experience is that uh, although I've done it the, the old-fashioned way, the hard way, I'm pretty comfortable in in my um, bedside diagnosis. And uh, Peter Johns, another fellow Canadian who many of you uh, may know. Um, has great videos on YouTube that show clinicians not just how to do hints, but some of the subtleties of nystagmus, how to examine and treat uh, BPPV of different canals. Uh, And I actually uh, emailed Peter today in preparation for this. And uh, like me, Peter kind of learned it uh, just by, you know, looking at it and playing with it and, and getting a little better at it and learning it iteratively. It's not like either one of us went through a course. So, you know, it's doable, but it does take some effort.
0: Well, GRACE3 goes on to help distinguish central from peripheral causes in patients with acute vestibular syndromes. And AVS is a clinical syndrome of acute onset continuous dizziness lasting days to weeks, and generally includes features suggestive of new or ongoing vestibular system dysfunction. Now in the emergency department, patients are symptomatic even at rest and exacerbations from head movement or positional changes is typical. And now this is different from the episodic syndromes that can be spontaneous or triggered. These next few recommendations that we're going to be talking about is the acute vestibular syndrome.
1: Yeah. And and I would say that you know, although the terms may not be familiar to the average emergency physicians, and they certainly were not to me until probably eight nine years ago, they're basic principles of taking a history. You know, when you when you talk to a chest pain patient, for example, you're going to use a troponin very differently in someone that's had eight hours of continuous chest pain as compared to someone that's had uh, triggered episodes of chest pain that are triggered by walking up a flight of stairs, carrying a bag of groceries that goes away after a minute or two of rest. So again, these concepts are the same concepts that we use with many other patients. We just haven't been taught to use them in patients with dizziness. So what's
0: recommendation
1: number two? So recommendation two, I'll read it. In adult ED patients with acute vestibular syndrome with nystagmus, we recommend routine use of the three-component HINTS test, head impulse test, nystagmus, test of uh for clinicians trained in its use to distinguish between central causes, usually stroke, and peripheral causes, usually inner ear, especially vestibular neuritis diagnoses. And that was a strong recommendation, and we felt that the evidence, uh, the level of evidence was high certainty.
0: Yeah. And this is really important. You know, you need to be properly trained and they emphasize this. Emergency physicians need to be properly trained on how to apply this test and interpret this test. Because there was a large chart review of emergency physicians that reported that we misapplied the HINTS exam. Wait for it. 97% of the time.
1: Yeah, it's uh, that was another fellow Canadian uh, that did that study. Uh, you guys are doing some pretty good research up there. Well, it's cold 11 months of the year. We've got to do something, right? I guess. But I, I would respond by reiterating the distinction that I made earlier between can we do it? Because I think um, the title of that article was can, or one of the articles, was can emergency physicians do this stuff? And um, I would say that we can do it, but we don't do it. And training is the thing that gets us from one place to the next. And I have to say, as an older physician, um, the concept of having something, you know, if I told you that there was a bedside physical exam technique that was more sensitive than a belly CT for ruling out appendicitis or ruling in appendicitis, people would be lined up around the corner to learn that technique. And yet that's what we have for, for acute dizziness And and people seem to have an allergic reaction to it rather than, I've got to learn this new technique.
0: So not to get too political, but yes, we can.
1: (laughs) All right. Recommendation number three. In, In adult ED patients with acute vestibular syndrome with nystagmus, so the same group as recommendation two, we suggest assessing hearing at the bedside by finger rub to identify new unilateral hearing loss as an additional criterion to aid in the identification of stroke, even if the three component hits exam, so this is a fourth component, uh, suggests a peripheral vestibular diagnosis, and, and and part of the reason that we did this as a separate uh, recommendation is because the level of evidence is is just a little bit weaker for this one.
0: Yeah, and just to remind everybody, that's where you take your fingers and you rub them back and forth beside uh, each ear on the patient to see if they can hear that that little f- rubbing of your fingers and stuff. So you're testing their ability to hear.
1: One other comment about that one, which is that, you know, the classic teaching is that because the the hearing and, and vestibular balance are co-located in the peripheral nervous system, that if you had both hearing loss and acute dizziness occurring together, that that meant you had labyrinthitis and it was peripheral. Um, But what we've learned in the last decade and a half or so is that strokes involving the anterior inferior cerebellar artery, the ICA territory, can actually present the same way. And and that's why we have uh, the the HINTS plus. The plus includes the testing of hearing by finger rub. And, And recommendation four is in adult ED patients with an acute vestibular syndrome without nystagmus We suggest assessing severity of gait unsteadiness to help distinguish central, usually stroke, from peripheral, usually vestibular neuritis diagnoses. And this is a conditional recommendation and moderate level of certainty.
0: So this is road testing your patients. This is getting them up and walking them, if possible, to assess their gait imbalance.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost uh, obvious, but it's very important. You know, you should be very hesitant to make a diagnosis of a, a benign peripheral cause of dizziness in a patient who cannot walk independently. And in terms of, you know, the way you opened it, you know, treat them and street them, you know, it's not really safe to discharge a patient if they're not steady on their feet, unless they have really good support at home. So if someone could walk before and now they can't, one should be very careful about calling that BPPV or vestibular neuritis.
0: Recommendation number five.
1: So in adult patients uh, with AVS with or without nystagmus, we recommend against routine use of non CT scan of the brain or CTA to help distinguish stroke from peripheral causes. And that was a strong recommendation. Uh, And we have some stuff that we talk about later in the implementation considerations. So just to emphasize what you just heard, and this is a trigger
0: warning to all those emergency physicians out there, this is a recommendation and it's strong recommendation against getting a CT. And this goes against the emergency physician alphabet, A, B, C, T. We like to send these patients to the donut of truth, thinking that we're going to find the answer. What this recommendation says strongly, based on high certainty of evidence, is don't use these imaging modalities like a CT or CTA
1: to distinguish between central and peripheral vertigo. Yeah, CT is a horrible test in this setting. I mean, you know, CT is a bad test, non-contrast CT is a bad test for any hyperacute stroke, but it's even worse in the posterior circulation, and it's even worse still in those posterior circulation strokes presenting as isolated dizziness because they tend to be smaller volume strokes. So, you know, if you get one um, and if you get one for, you know, rolling out a bleed, it's very uncommon for a a bleed to cause isolated dizziness without other clues in your history or your physical exam. So I recommend strongly not to get one. And if you do get one for whatever reason, uh, that in no way, shape or form rules out a stroke.
0: All right. Recommendation number six.
1: All right. This one uh, is about MR. So in adult ED patients with an acute vestibular syndrome with or without nystagmus, uh, if a cl- trained clinician, a clinician trained in the use of HINTS is available, we recommend against routine MRI uh, or MRA um, as a first-line diagnostic test prior to physical examination to help distinguish between stroke and vestibular neuritis. And this too is a strong recommendation against. And Again, as an older physician, it's important to realize that the physical examination, if you learn to do it properly, actually is is more accurate than an MRI. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that if you get an MRI in a patient that's had a stroke presenting with isolated dizziness, and if you do that MRI in the first 48 hours, uh, the sensitivity of MRI, even with diffusion-weighted imaging, is only about 80%. And uh, I don't think that's that commonly known. Now, uh, obviously, you know, a stroke that comes in at at eight hours is going to be different than one that comes in at 42 hours in terms of sensitivity. But your HINTS exam, if you know how to do it, actually is much more accurate than MRI. So do you have a metric or a
0: benchmark that you use? When can one can be considered an older physician? Because, you know, I've been a doctor for 28 years now. So like, does it have to be three decades? Is that, is that the line I have to cross?
1: Well, I think you're getting there. You're you're either there or you're very close. I'm getting there. Yeah, (laughs) I'm getting to the gray hairs and the no hairs. Exactly.
0: But the other part of that is, you know, you mentioned as an older physician and being able to use physical exam techniques. That's that's what got me very excited about the Hints exam. You know, that I could, in my own hands and using my own brain, be better than some huge magnet that costs millions of dollars, and being in a rural area primarily for most of my career the part about not getting an MRI, that's pretty easy because I can't get an MRI because we don't have one. The easiest way not to get a test is not have the, you know, there's a big barrier if I have to ship them down the highway a a great distance. So that's really, uh, you know, interesting to say historically, you know, older physicians, but also I think that there is an issue of access to it. And so why not get really good and train yourself as clinicians to be adequately trained and use the HINTS exam?
1: Yeah. And and the the flip side of the hints not being very sensitive for stroke is that it's very sensitive for vestibular neuritis. And and, and by the way, vestibular neuritis is something I hadn't heard of either until about nine or 10 years ago. And and vestibular neuritis is just like the Hollywood pitch would be Bell's palsy meets the vestibular component of the eighth nerve. It's just post-viral inflammation of the vestibular component of the eighth nerve. And um, you can confidently diagnose that and uh there's some there's some issues there too in terms of false positives but it's nice to be able to make a diagnosis based on physical exam it's like the i call it well we'll get into bppv in a few minutes
0: all right recommendation number 7 and this is this is the last one that deals with acute vestibular syndrome what's that recommendation and then we'll move on to the uh, spontaneous episodic vestibular syndromes
1: all right so this one is in acute adult patients with an acute vestibular syndrome And they have a central or an equivocal hints result. We recommend use of stroke protocol MRI with diffusion weighted imaging to further distinguish between stroke and peripheral causes. Uh, This too is a strong recommendation. And and here, uh, I think the important thing is that the the distinction between this and the prior one is that you're not using MRI in this situation to make a primary diagnosis if you're trained in using the Hints evaluation. But once you've got a Hints evaluation that's either shows central or is equivocal, you can't be sure, then an MRI can be helpful. Although again, Uh, I would point out that in the first 48 hours, and by the way, the gold standard in those 48-hour studies was a delayed MRI done between, I think, three and five or three and seven days. So they ultimately will show a positive MRI, and that was the gold standard. But in the first couple of days, if you were to follow recommendation seven, you still need to be careful about that early uh, lack of sensitivity. All right,
0: like I said, that covers uh you know the first seven. Now we're moving on to recommendation eight where we move into spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome.
1: Yep. So the first one is is pretty basic. In adult ED patients with spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome, the writing committee believes that routine use of a detailed history and physical exam with emphasis on the cranial nerves, including visual fields. Eye movements, limb coordination, and gait assessment helps to distinguish between central TIA being the most common versus peripheral vestibular migraine or Meniere's diagnoses. And this too is an ungraded good practice statement.
0: When I was reading recommendation eight, it just seemed like motherhood and apple pie. I mean, take a good history followed by a directed physical exam. Isn't that what you had talked about earlier? You know, this is this is not rocket science. We're not reinventing things. Talk to the patient. Examine the patient before just going ABCT. Now, I just want to remind people that spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome is a clinical syndrome of transient dizziness usually lasting minutes to hours and generally includes features suggestive of temporary short-lived vestibular system dysfunction during attacks. There may be a history of recurrent attacks, but some patients, this might be their first presentation, and there are no clear triggers for these attacks, although symptoms may be exacerbated by certain head movements or position changes during attacks. These patients are generally, though, asymptomatic at rest.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, some patients will have longer episodes, and if, if they're actively, acutely symptomatic when you're seeing them on the stretcher, then you would call them an acute vestibular syndrome. And the true episodic nature might not be apparent until later on in retrospect. But conceptually, this is no different from managing any patient presenting with focal neurologic symptoms as a stroke, even though if the symptoms later spontaneously resolve and the imaging is negative, then you call it a TIA in retrospect. You you know, the major uh, serious diagnosis here is a posterior circulation TIA, and, and the major benign diagnosis is vestibular migraine. And, um, you know, vestibular migraine is orders of magnitude more common than TIA, but it's not something that you or I often think about or diagnose or frankly need to diagnose in the emergency department. And yet knowing about it will help us try to tease out using the history, uh, you know, who's more likely to have a vascular event, who's more likely to have a migrenous event.
0: All right. And recommendation number nine gets into a bit of a prohibition against CTs again.
1: Yeah. CT bad. Uh, In adult ED patients with spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome, we recommend against routine use of CT to help distinguish between central TIA versus peripheral vestibular migraine or Meniere's diagnoses. And this too is a strong recommendation. All
0: right. What about recommendation number 10?
1: Uh, Number 10, in adult ED patients with spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome and and you're concerned about TIA, let's say it's an older patient with a bunch of vascular risk factors, then we do suggest (coughs) CTA or MRI of the head and neck uh, to rule out posterior circulation vascular pathology. And that was just moderate level of certainty.
0: So you're saying we can get CTAs sometimes or an MRA sometimes for some patients based upon moderate evidence.
1: Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're thinking about TIA, no matter what TIA, if it's anterior circulation, same thing, you want to look at their vessels because as a general rule, and a lot of this, some of this came out of Canada too on the uh, western side of your country, you know, patients with TIA who decompensate early, uh, that is they have a stroke in the first day or so uh, they are overrepresented in with patients with large vessel disease so looking at the vessels in a question tia patient i think is important
0: all right now recommendation number 11 gets into these triggered episodic vestibular syndromes
1: Yeah, so 11 is in adult patients with triggered episodic vestibular syndrome. We recommend routine use of Dix-Hallpike tests to diagnose posterior canal BPPV.
0: A triggered episodic vestibular syndrome is a clinical syndrome of transient dizziness lasting seconds to minutes and generally includes features to suggest temporary short-lived vestibular system dysfunction. So they got nausea, nystagmus, maybe some postural instability. And there is usually a history of recurrent attacks, but again, patients may be presenting for the first time.
1: In cases of uh, triggered episodic vestibular syndrome, they're usually pretty clear triggers, uh, most often movement ahead. And very frequently, patients rolling around in bed at night uh, will present. Pretty pretty much any complaint uh, in my mind, if someone gets woken up by a headache or shortness of breath or chest pain or belly pain, those are usually bad diagnoses. But patients who get woken up by dizziness is usually BPPV, and um, you know sometimes standing up or getting out of bed will be the trigger, or, or lifting up and, and getting something off of a high shelf, or you're bird watching and you're looking up into a high tree. These patients are usually asymptomatic at rest, but but sometimes patients will have this lingering sense of. Uh, unease, or they'll say I'm continuously dizzy, and they can superficially mimic an acute vestibular syndrome, but there's a clear waxing and waning that's, that's triggerable. And this is like the nursemaid's elbow of uh, neurology, as I like to call it. BPPV is so much fun to diagnose uh, and to treat, but it, it, there's an important um, misconception to be avoided here, and that's that patients that get worse with movement means it's BPPV because positional is part of the word. And that's not true. You know, you take a patient with a cerebellar tumor and you throw them on a merry-go-round, their dizziness is going to get worse. Um, so worsened dizziness with movement is not diagnostic of a peripheral cause. Um, and this is a very common and I would say a dangerous uh, misconception.
0: Well, in recommendation number 11, it does mention the routine use of the Dix-Hall-Pike test, and Dr. Peter Johns does have some really great videos on YouTube to show this Dix-Hall-Pike test. In the show notes, I'll put in a picture that sort of illustrates that. How about recommendation number 12?
1: Number 12 is in adult patients with triggered episodic vestibular syndrome, we recommend against routine use of CT or CTA, Again, another strong recommendation with a moderate certainty of uh, evidence.
0: So this is another prohibition on using a CT scanner. We're starting to sound like a broken record because you and I are older. Uh, You know, for the younger audience, a record is this thing of vinyl. It's about 12 inches, pressed flat, a needle goes down on it, and you could get audio from your hi-fi system. That's what a record was. So we're sounding like a broken record saying, hey, you know, let's not use a CT scanner in these cases.
1: Yeah. I can't remember which poet it was, but she said, let me count the ways. And, you know, we could count the ways that CT results are are useless and potentially dangerous because people conclude that there's no central cause in patients with dizziness. All right. Recommendation number 13. So in patients uh, with a triggered episodic vestibular syndrome diagnosed with typical posterior canal BPPV by a positive dix hallpike with a characteristic nystagmus, we recommend against routine use of MRI or MRA.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I've had some really good success with the Dix Hall Pike test for diagnosing BPPV. And and when you do this, and then you do the Epley maneuver, and they respond, I mean, you can feel like the Jedi Master. They came in with this horrible, you know, positional vertigo, and they're throwing up, and and you have just rolled people around, and ah, they can walk out of there.
1: Yeah, those are definitely not the droids you're looking for, and I couldn't agree more. A couple points of clarification is first you have to learn when to do the Dick's Hall Pike. Uh, patients with posterior canal BPPV will not have spontaneous nystagmus, and then you have to learn how to do it and how to interpret it. And, you know, to some extent it gets into some of the nitty gritty of nystagmus, but as someone, you know, just like most emergency physicians, I have a very short attention span. There's not a ton of... of of details about nystagmus one needs to learn. And, you know, Peter has great videos on this. And uh, a lot of my articles talks about this. Uh, The uh, SAM uh, guideline will come out with an app that will also show examples. But um, the other thing is that it only takes about 30 seconds to do. And you can make a disposition, again, getting back to treat them and street them, um, you can make a really confident diagnosis of a benign condition And um, confirming a benign diagnosis is a great way of ruling out a worrisome one.
0: Yeah, like I said, it's been very satisfying using that technique. All right, recommendation number 14.
1: So in adult patients with a clinical diagnosis of vestibular neuritis, we suggest shared decision-making with patients to weigh risks and benefits of short-term steroid treatment uh, for those presenting within the first three days of symptom onset. And this had a very low level of uh, evidence.
0: Yeah, I really like doing shared decision making in the emergency department. I'm a I'm a big advocate for that. It gives patients that autonomy and agency over their own health. Uh this is even more important when there's little evidence to support one action over the other. It's not thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do this. It's more like, meh, what do you want to do? And in this case, the use of steroids for vestibular neuritis, we have very low certainty of evidence. So we should share that uncertainty with patients and let them know. We are not too sure about this, so what do you want to do?
1: Yeah, I have to confess, I generally come down in a patient without any contraindications to steroids. If they ask me, what would you do? I tend to recommend it. Um, but, you know, if you had a patient with a positive PPD who's hypertensive and has glaucoma uh, that or, and is diabetic, that's not the patient to use steroids for something where it might not help.
0: Yeah, it comes down to that EBM answer of, it all depends. Yeah. Well, we've made it through the list to number 15, the last and final recommendation in this GRACE-3 guideline. What does it say?
1: So this is in, in adult patients with posterior canal BPPV diagnosed with a positive dix hallpike pipe. We recommend the Epley canalith repositioning maneuver, the Epley maneuver, to be performed at the time of diagnosis. Uh, strong recommendation, moderate level of evidence. Yeah, and this
0: is a podcast, so we're not going to be able to show people how to do the Epley Maneuver on an audio show. So I'll put a link in the blog post, uh, another link to Dr. Peter John's wonderful YouTube videos showing him doing the dix Hall Pike test followed by the Epley
1: Maneuver. Yeah, I was just going to point out that, you know, we we had a big debate in the committee and there were, I think, 18 or 19 people on the committee, and and we had a big debate about whether to include horizontal canal BPPV, which has a different diagnostic test and a different therapeutic um, maneuver to to fix it. Uh, In the end, we decided to keep it simple and, and just talked about posterior canal BPPV, uh, but as you get more more familiar with posterior canal bppv you'll you'll see there's some patients with horizontal nystagmus that don't quite fit and uh a lot of those patients have horizontal canal bppv
0: well jonathan those were the 15 recommendations is there anything else you want to add
1: yeah i think that uh using a timing and triggers category approach rather than a what-do-you-mean-dizzy approach is worth trying uh, and learning. Uh, The word a patient uses is not useful. You know, some patients, though, it's hard to, you know, some patients don't remember what they had for breakfast. So some patients, it's hard to get them into a timing and trigger category. And that standing algorithm that I mentioned earlier that was designed uh, by an Italian emergency physician, Simone Vanni. And uh, it was uh, in an article, 2017, Frontiers of Neurology. That one is agnostic to timing and triggers category. And that's why we didn't include it in any of the guidelines, because we based our questions on the uh, presenting syndrome. But if you don't like putting them into a timing and triggers category, uh, you can use the standing algorithm, and uh, it works quite well as well. The training in the uh, the standing article, as well as the Parisian emergency physician, the Guerlier study was very similar. And Simone has also published data recently showing that it takes emergency physicians less than three minutes to do these tests, which includes both the hints tests as well as the diagnostic tests for BPPV. And um, you know, we we recognize that most emergency physicians are not comfortable using some of these tests, and. All I can say is that it's been a ton of fun to learn how to use them, to have a dizzy patient where you can make a confident diagnosis. Uh, It's just better patient care and it's a lot more fun. Well, the
0: guidelines do have some really useful figures in there. Um, one of the figures is to help clinicians recognize some of the common errors in diagnosing. I thought you would like that one because you're uh, focused on avoiding misdiagnosis. And so it has some of the common errors broken down into the potential error, the result of the error, and giving some examples. And that's figure number three. And I'll throw, uh, I'll throw that uh, in the show notes.
1: Great. It's, um, yeah, there's also a nice algorithm uh, about how we approach or how I believe one should approach patients with acute dizziness um, that sort of is a stepwise thing. And it breaks it down into these timing and trigger syndromes that I, I think is conceptually very useful.
0: Well, I have some exciting news. I reached out to Dr. Peter Johns. He is a vertigo expert. He's also been practicing emergency medicine since 1985. He's been passionate about vertigo education for the last two decades. He co-authored the Vertigo chapter in the current edition of Tintinelli's Emergency Medicine textbook. And as we have mentioned many times on this podcast, Peter has a wonderful YouTube channel about vertigo. It has over 16,000 subscribers and 5 million views. He was also on SGEM 310 talking about the HINTS exam. Peter... What do you think of Grace 3?
2: Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me again on SGM. You know I'm never short of opinions, and here's a few of mine. First of all, that was a great discussion you had with Jonathan Edlow. I learned a lot about Vertigo from his work over the years. Now, Grace 3, from my point of view, is a wonderful and very welcome document. I agree with almost all of it. Incredible work from the multidisciplinary panel. I know quite a few of them, and including Jonathan Edlow, And I can assure you that their recommendations come from a desire to help us help vertigo patients. And that's what the GRACE 3 document is all about. But it must have been like herding cats trying to get them to agree on some things. And I think it's great that the first and most important recommendation in GRACE 3 is that emergency clinicians should receive training in bedside physical examination techniques for dizziness and vertigo patients. They even stated that vertigo training should be a priority for emergency medicine. And learning how to diagnose and treat BPPV and how to use hints to help rule out a stroke are the cornerstones of that recommendation. Because of the large knowledge gap that exists between what we should know about vertigo and what we do know about vertigo, many of these recommendations may be perceived as a hard ask by some. It's of course daunting when someone asks you to learn a lot of new information and skills, especially when it's about your least favorite patient presentation to see, as dizziness vertigo is for many physicians. But in a survey done 15 years ago by Deb Eagles, Ian Steele, and Jeff Perry from the University of Ottawa, they found that identification of a central or serious cause of vertigo was a top priority for emergency physicians for the development of a clinical decision rule. So we knew then that we needed to be better at vertigo. And GRACE 3 gives guidelines on how we can do that.
0: So it sounds like you like the GRACE-3 guidelines. Do you have any issues with the document?
2: You knew the answer would be yes, Ken. First, a minor but important quibble. In the GRACE-3 document, they refer to the diagnostic nystagmus that is seen in the Dix-Hallpike test as upbeat torsional. I much prefer the term vertical upwards torsional, as it makes it clear that vertical upward nystagmus in a Dix-Hallpike test is expected and you don't need to worry. Because if there's one myth that ED docs seem to remember about vertigo, it's that all vertigo is bad. There's been so many useless CT scans ordered for BPPV by ED docs who do a Dix-Hallpike test on a patient, see vertical nystagmus, and the response is like this. Vertical? What? Vertical? Oh, the patient has a the brain tumor or something. Did you get a head CT? So can we please call it vertical upward torsional nystagmus and drop the upbeat thing? I guess
0: that's something for the guideline writers to consider. But was that Dr. Glockenfleck and I heard?
2: Yeah, I had him do a small cameo on one of my videos. If your listeners want to see more of it, it's called The Nystagmus and a Positive Dix Test 100th Anniversary.
0: Okay, that was your little quibble. Is there anything more substantial you take issue with in the Grace Three Guidelines, Peter?
2: In fact, I have three bigger issues I'd like to touch on if I may.
0: Absolutely. That's why I invited you to be on the SGEM.
2: Okay, the first one is downplaying the value of looking for neurologic symptoms and signs when evaluating acute vestibular syndrome. Dr. Edlow said in your discussion that confirming a benign diagnosis is a great way of ruling out a worrisome one, and that's very true. But a corollary of this is patients who you suspect have a benign diagnosis have no business having worrisome symptoms, and you should worry about them if they do. Jonathan described the patients that were addressed in the GRACE 3 document as not having some obvious central cause. He said they weren't dragging their right arm or leg or have horrible slurred speech. Yeah, you know, these aren't the dizzy strokes we're worried about missing. I believe many cerebellar strokes that are missed have subtle, not obvious, neurologic symptoms and signs which are not compatible with a benign diagnosis such as BPBV or visible neuritis. I suggest that all patients with acute dizziness should be asked about and examined for central features, like significant new headache or neck pain, focal weakness or paresthesias, diplopia, dysarthria, dysmetria, and vertical nystagmus at rest, not during the dix pike test, and also inability to walk unaided. It's true that these signs have poor sensitivity for dizzy strokes, only about 47% sensitive according to a systemic review and meta-analysis by Shaw, which looked at this issue these neurologic signs and symptoms are very specific, about 93% specific. So if you find one of these things, you're unlikely dealing with a benign cause. And for some reason, this was glossed over when GRACE 3 addressed the acute vestibular syndrome, where they don't mention them and then instead state, all you need to do is an inch exam, never mind these subtle signs. But strangely, they do recommend a thorough search for neurologic signs if you're worried about a dizzy TIA. In my opinion, the first defense against missing a dizzy stroke is asking about stroke stuff and then applying the HINTS exam. This point seems to be lost in a rush to get the HINTS.
0: Well, I advocate for doing a really good history followed by a directed physical examination. So what's your second issue with the GRACE-3 guidelines?
2: This is a big one, Ken. And that's when they talk about what they call AVS without nystagmus and whether to do HINTS on those patients or not. This is where I found a disturbing amount of internal contradiction in the GRACE 3 document. They recommend HINTS exam for AVS with nystagmus, no problem there. And then recommendation number four states that for AVS without nystagmus, you use gait assessment to determine if they're likely suffering from a central or peripheral cause. They don't suggest HINTS to be used at this time. So, so far so good, as I agree that you don't do HINTS in patients without nystagmus. But this is where it gets weird Recommendation number six states that for AVS both with and without nystagmus, if a clinician trained in the use of HINTS is available, don't use an MRI or MRA as a first-line test prior to physical exam. And by this, I assume they mean that if someone who is trained in using the HINTS exam is available, they can step up and do the three components of the HINTS exam on the patient with AVS without nystagmus. And if the overall HINTS exam is peripheral, you don't need to get an MRI. This is where the GRACE 3 document seems to be arguing with itself. In GRACE 3, there's a table number 4, and it states that the head impulse test has only been validated in AVS patients with nystagmus, and this is true. A little farther along in the document, in a discussion of hints, they also state the head impulse test component should only be used in patients with ongoing business who also have spontaneous nystagmus. Use in other dizzy patients results in increased and unnecessary neuroimaging. So why does recommendation 6 suggest that you can use HINTS in AVS patients with and without nystagmus?
0: Well, I hope Jeff and some of the co-authors of the GRACE-3 guidelines will listen to this segment, and perhaps they can clarify what they meant.
2: Ken, if they have no nystagmus, which is the N in HINTS, then you have to take the N out of HINTS. And since the GRACE-3 document itself says that you shouldn't do the head impulse test in patients without nystagmus, you have to take the HI out of HINTS also. So that only leaves the TS in HINTS, the test of skew. So the HINTS exam in patients without nystagmus is the test of skew alone?
0: So you think that this could increase the use of advanced neuroimaging in these patients?
2: Yes, because many patients with BPPV and vestibular migraine can endorse being somewhat constantly dizzy, but have no nystagmus. I've seen a lot of patients like that. And if you do a head impulse test on these patients, since they don't have vestibular neuritis, they have a normal head impulse test, which would be an overall hint central result, and off the patient goes for a useless MRI. So I'm not sure how the recommendation that HINTS can be used in AVS patients without nystagmus can be supported.
0: Do you feel a bit better now, Peter, getting that off your chest?
2: Yeah, this is where Jonathan and I don't see eye-to-eye, but it's one of the few areas, in fact.
0: Well, you said you had three concerns. What's the third?
2: Ken, it's about what isn't recommended in the GRACE document. It doesn't recommend that ED docs learn how to diagnose or treat horizontal canal BPPV, and it doesn't recommend that we diagnose vestibular migraine. The document does, in fact, spend a fair bit of time describing both horizontal canal BPPV and vestibular migraine. All the studies that trained ED docs to diagnose both posterior and horizontal canal BPBV found horizontal BPBV to be about a third of all cases of BPBV. So we do see it. And Dr. Edlow correctly described the basic differential in spontaneous episodic vestibular syndrome as being vestibular migraine and posterior circulation TIA, with vestibular migraine being 10 times more common than posterior TIA. So we see both horizontal canal, BPPV, and vestibular migraine commonly, but the vast majority of emergency doctors have never made the diagnosis, and in fact, most aren't even aware that these diagnoses exist. Jonathan emphasized that it's a ton of fun when you can make a confident diagnosis of dizzy patients. Absolutely. So expanding our diagnostic ability to common things like horizontal canal BPPV and visceral migraine is part of the way of making vertigo less frustrating and more rewarding. And if Grace 3 won't recommend learning how to make the diagnosis of horizontal canal BPPV and visceral migraine, I certainly will. You know, the nystagmus in posterior canal BPPV was described 100 years ago. The Epley Maneuver, a highly effective and easily performed treatment, was described 30 years ago. The HINTS exam, 14 years ago. We asked for clinical decision rules about vertigo 15 years ago. And yet we're still gnashing our teeth and seeing how difficult it is to diagnose vertigo patients without ever learning how to do the dix Pike test or the HINTS exam. It reminds me of a scene from The Simpsons.
0: Yeah, you've got to help us, Doc. We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Well, thanks, Peter, for sharing your one quibble and your three major concerns about the GRACE Three document. Any final comments you want to make?
2: You know, the authors of this excellent guideline describe it as forward-looking and aspirational. And I agree, because there's a lot of work to be done to train emergency physicians to become vertigo-competent. But if we keep the attitude of that Simpson character, we're not going to get there. I understand that seeing patients that worry you, that you feel you can do nothing for, and are confusing, is a frustrating and scary proposition. Looking forward, we should be inspired by this document, and we can and should learn how to properly assess patients with dizziness, vertigo. Knowing how to make a definitive diagnosis on the common benign cause of vertigo and cure many of them, as well as how to tease out the worrisome from the non-worrisome dizzy patients, is satisfying and the right thing to do, and will benefit our patients and ourselves.
0: Thank you, Peter, for your comments, your advocacy in this space and all your wonderful YouTube videos. You are helping make us better clinicians.
2: And thanks, Ken, for bringing this important guideline to light. And a reminder to your listeners, if you want me to teach your residents or faculty about vertigo in real life, email me at peterjohns84 at gmail.com, and let's make it happen.
0: That sound means it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Dr. Dennis Wren. He knew that the mutant leader was the name of the villain who was faster, stronger, and seemingly impervious to pain in the classic Batman graphic novel from 1986. Jeff, what's the question this week?
1: So this week's question is, Dr. John Epley was an Oregonian otolaryngologist who first described the BPPV treatment maneuver that bears his name at an otolaryngology conference in Anaheim, California. His local medical community shunned him, stopped referring him patients, and tried to force him off the medical staff. Medical journals rejected Epley's submissions because his treatment defied established therapy. It was a decade later that a journal finally accepted an article describing his maneuver. The question is, what year did he first present his BPPV treatment at the conference in Anaheim?
0: What a great backstory, right? You know, sometimes you got to be a little rebel out there, you know, as uh, local medical community was like, mm, we don't think so. This is going against the standard of care or the wisdom of the crowd. Um, a little bit of a disruptor there that Dr. Epley. Yeah, uh, I will give a hint to people, though. Uh, the answer is in the best musical era of all time. The right answer is in that decade. And regular listeners know what the best musical and movie era of all time is. Jonathan, you wanted to say something else, though?
1: Yeah, just that, you know, this resistance of new ways of thinking is, is actually more common than we would like to think. You know, when Semmelweis was uh, telling doctors in Vienna back in the 1800s to wash their hands, people didn't believe him, uh, even though women were dying a lot because uh, they were getting purpural sepsis because of strep, because people weren't washing their hands. Even the bacterial uh, thesis for um, gastric ulcer, duodenal ulcer, uh, that was devised by Barry Marshall, an Australian uh, doctor uh, back in the 80s, I think, you know, he couldn't get his stuff published either because everybody knew that ulcers was caused by hyperacidity and, and people being nervous and type A. So, uh, you know, keep open minds. I have a quote from a friend of mine.
0: She has a website called Thinking is Power, and she reminds people to be curious, be skeptical, and to be humble. And I think that's great advice. Well, thanks, Jonathan, for coming on and going through Grace 3 Guidelines with me.
1: Really appreciate it. It's it's a long document, but, uh, you know, you can pull out the pieces that you like, and uh, hopefully it'll lead to better patient care. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, you have one final task. I need you to read the SGEM tagline.
1: Okay. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.